Bible. Let's open our Bibles this morning together to the book of the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon. What could possibly go wrong? That's a joke. That could, that's, that's funny. <laughs> For those of you who haven't read the Song of Solomon, maybe you don't understand what I'm talking about. We're going to start out by looking at the storyline in the Song of Solomon this morning. And for those of you who don't know, we've been teaching, through, teaching overviews of uh, the books of the Bible, and starting with Genesis, and we made it all the way through Song of Solomon. I was counting them. I lost count. I don't know, 16, 17, 18 books, somewhere around in there that we covered, maybe more than that. And we're, we're working our way through the entire Bible, and the reason is... Number one is because this is God's Word. This is the Holy Bible. We need to know God's Word. And I believe one of the biggest problems in our church today is biblical illiteracy. God has written us letters. He's written a book. And a lot of us just are not familiar with God's Word. And honestly, I'm not trying to guilt trip anybody this morning. I have more to learn about God's Word. All of us do. But if we neglect it, we neglect it to our own Shame, we neglect it to our own hurt in life because God's given us these words to teach us, to instruct us. And the Bible says all scripture, every word of scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for us. If something's profitable in life, we usually chase after that. And God's word is profitable. He tells us it's profitable for teaching, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And every single one of us need that this morning. So we're going to be looking at the storyline of the Song of Solomon. A lot of times we don't understand why these books are in the Bible and the connection. Well, the Bible is a, a, it's a library basically of 66 books, but they all tell one story. Over 40 different authors across uh, thousands of years, 1,500 years, uh, on three different continents that spoke uh, three different languages, all kinds of different uh uh, backgrounds and careers and lifestyles, kings, servants, uh, just fishermen, all different types of people God used to write his word. Very flawed, very broken people, yet he used them. And that gives me hope this morning that God can use me. And as we, we think about all of the books telling one story, there's only one explanation for that. That a holy... God inspired this word. He breathed it out. This is his book. He authored this book through human authors. He inspired them to write these stories and he wrote them to us. God's word is true and we believe it this morning and it's the foundation for everything that we do in this place. So the book of the Song of Solomon comes after Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. It's a part of the wisdom literature but this storyline begins all the way back in Genesis. Because if you turn back to Genesis 1, we find out that God created man and woman in his image. Male and female, he created them in his image. And that is the starting point for this book. God created man first, but man was not complete. And God himself said this, even though man walked with God in the garden, God spoke to him, even though man had this incredible, inc 
incredible job of, of ruling over his creation. And we see him naming the animals. But yet he doesn't find a helper that's suitable for him. And God says it is not good for man to be alone. So God created woman as man's helper, as a part of who he was to complete who God created man to be. She was created for him. He needed her. We still need her today. This is how God created us. Have you ever heard the expression, ish? It's kind of annoying. A lot of people use it. We all know what that means, right? If someone says ish, you know, it's kind of like, eh. It basically means, like if someone asks you if you're hungry, and you're like, ish, hungry-ish. And it basically means kind of, or so-so, or average, not that impressive. Or if you ask someone what time it was, or, or what time church starts on Sunday morning, we could say, quite literally, 10.30-ish, which means not exact, but kind of around that same time. Well, God literally, after he created man, he looked at man and said, ish. That's, that's actually the Hebrew word for man. You'll never forget that now. Ish, I-S-H, is the Hebrew word for man. And God created man, and he looked at him, and he's like, everything else God created, he said it was good. He looked at man and he was like, it's not good for man to be alone. It's just ish. Well, the word for woman is isha. Anybody else who lived through the 90s like I did, y'all remember the saying, sha? You remember what that means? It means like, yes, or wow. Now, I'm, I'm not expositing the Hebrew this morning, but I basically think it crosses over into the Hebrew. God created man and he was like, ish. He creates a woman, and he's like, Shah, that's awesome. Wow. And that's exactly what man said, because when God created Adam, he, he, or when he created Eve and brought her, brought the woman to the man, do you remember what man did? Man breaks out in song. Adam breaks out in this song, in this poem, that we believe he probably sang to the woman. How many of you like musicals? This morning. Well, whether you like them or not, the Bible basically starts out as a musical. There's this song that just erupts, and it's written in Hebrew poetry. And the man said, this is at last bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha, woman, because she was taken out of man. So marriage is the first institution that God established on the earth. It's the primary institution. It is the foundational institution upon which every other institution stands. Before you get government, before you get cities, before you get towns, before you get all these different nationalities and ethnicities and everything else that we see that God established on this world, where God's authority is invested, we see marriage. We see a man and a woman created in God's image joined together as the foundational primary institution upon which all of the world stands. And we live in a world today that attacks marriage, attempts to redefine marriage, and it minimizes or mocks marriage. Yet, 
God in his wisdom established marriage between a man and a woman. And what God has joined together, no man can destroy. So according to scripture, God is very clear. Biblical marriage exists between one man and one woman for one lifetime. Now we know we live in a fallen, we know we live in a broken world. We know that divorce is a reality. We know that there is forgiveness for human failures, and we all have failures. And when we experience things that were never intended to be experienced, like divorce, Jesus said, because of the hardness of your heart, God permitted this, he allowed this, but this was never the original plan. But even within that, we see forgiveness. We see God allowing people in scripture who totally messed up marriage to receive grace and to be forgiven and to move forward in their lives and to find a place of redemption and restoration. It's, it's powerful. But we can't ever allow this sin-cursed, fallen, broken world to affect our view of marriage. Marriage allows us to express the love that God has placed inside of us as his image bearers. And it is the union through which God blesses the world with children who also bear his image. So it all starts with love between a man and a woman within the bounds of marriage. The first temptation was aimed at dividing the husband and his wife. And it led to the first sin which resulted in broken relationship not only between the man and his wife, where they immediately start blaming each other and turn against each other. And now they're affected by the curse, but it mainly separated the relationship between God and man and God and woman. And that's what sin always does. It separates, it divides us. And man and woman were cursed along with the serpent, but the institution of marriage stood, and their love stood. God has confirmed and reestablished marriage in the Old and the New Testament, book after book after book, confirming God's original plan of love and marriage between a man and a woman for a lifetime. Now, the book of the Song of Solomon is recorded it's a it's a song that has been recorded that solomon wrote for his wife now here's the thing that we need to realize we learned this back when we went through the book of kings and um, i think one of the other books as well chronicles but solomon wrote the bible tells us in first kings 432 1005 songs in his lifetime Think about that. Over a thousand songs that were written by Solomon, but he calls this, we call it the Song of Solomon. But do you know what Solomon calls this book? It's found in verse 1 if you look down at your page. This is called the Song of Songs. What he means is this is his greatest song. Out of all the things we have recorded by Solomon, this is his greatest song, and it's probably, arguably, the greatest song in the Bible, which would 
make it the greatest song in the world. So it's important for us this morning to understand this book. Like the wisest man in the world wrote this. The man who experienced more culture, more music, more pleasure, all these different things as we studied in Ecclesiastes. His entire life was an experiment to squeeze all the joy out of life he could. And he discovered in the book of Ecclesiastes the only way to experience life and feel full joy is to experience it the way that God intended it. If you try to separate joy and pleasure or wealth, anything from God, you destroy that. It becomes an idol and it destroys you from the inside out. So this man that understood love, pleasure, joy, he wrote this book and we've got a lot to learn from it. How arrogant would it be of me to think, you know what, I live here in the 21st century and I think I probably know a little bit more about this, so I really don't need this in my life. I would never say that out loud. You would never say that out loud. But when we neglect God's word, that's basically what we're saying, not with our words, but with our lives. So I want to explain the basic storyline and how this book unfolds because it's, it's beautiful. Sometimes we struggle to understand it, but I want to help you understand it this morning, hoping this will whet our appetite to study this book. So the Song of Solomon is arranged by character. There are three different parties that join this song. The first is the bride, and she is a hardworking shepherd girl with a very difficult background and a rough home life. Some of us can relate to that. There's, there's this girl who's growing up working hard while everybody else is just seems like living it up and everything else in life seems like everybody has it just given, handed to them on a silver platter. This woman is working hard and she finds true love. Well, the second person is the groom. He's a handsome and powerful shepherd, and he's also the king. It's King Solomon. And then the third group that we see in this book, if, you're, if you use an ESV, it has basically labels at the top of each section, and you can see who it is that's speaking. If you read through it in a version or, or a, a yeah, version or a copy of the scriptures that doesn't have the headings, a lot of times it's hard to understand where the woman stops singing and the man begins or the, the uh, crowd begins. But the third group in this is the chorus, a community of people who are celebrating the bride and the bridegroom's love and their union. So imagine this stage where this grand play is being played out. There's a central character uh, the woman and her love, this, this man and woman who stands center stage singing to one another. And then in the background, maybe off to the side, there's this large choir. And occasionally they just burst in and begin singing, confirming and celebrating what the woman and the man are singing to one another. That's actually what is happening in this book. And this song has three movements, three different acts that happen the first is the bride and the bridegroom are preparing for the wedding. The next is the bride and the groom are professing their desire and love for one another. And the third is that the bride and the groom are finally united. This song culminates in their marriage and their 
mutual delight in one another in this gift that God has given them. The bride is her beloved's and he belongs to her and his desire is for her. It's a story of satisfaction, of love, of adoration, delight, and sexual desire and sexual fulfillment. This song is so graphic in the original language in Hebrew that multiple sources claim that the Hebrews could not read this book until they were 30 years old. Now, I don't know for sure that that's true, but some of the early church fathers actually confirmed that, and other people throughout history, um, like Jerome, actually confirmed that that was true. Now, I don't know if that was until you were 30 or until you got married. It seemed like somebody would be able to read this once they got married, but I don't know. Originally, they could only read this when they got to a certain stage of life because this song is incredibly graphic. It does not hold back, and I'm not going to dive into that this morning because I don't think it's appropriate. I've heard a lot of preachers do that, and they try to basically shock their congregations or try to be funny. I don't think this is funny, and I don't think this is something we should try to shock one another with. It's something that we should properly understand and celebrate it in the right context that God has given it to us. By the way, I'm just curious. How many of us have heard a sermon on the Song of Solomon. I may have heard, uh, so there's one of us, I may have heard one or two that, that someone dealt with it, and, and I'll have to say this, it was out of context. <laughs> so I think this is important for the body of Christ, and I've had a lot of people ask me this morning, uh, what you got for us in the Song of Solomon, because they understand that this is some... Uh, thin ice that we are walking on at times, especially preaching it and proclaiming it from the pulpit. Many times the imagery in this book does not translate over into English, but this book graphically depicts the bride and the groom's emotions, their passions, and their physical appearance. And I'll stop right there. So let's look at the themes. That's the storyline. This bride and groom singing to one another, the community around them celebrating this gift that God gave us back in the book of Genesis at creation, this foundational primary institution that reflects God's love in God's world between God's people. So let's look at the themes. First of all, God's law commands sexual purity. Marriage provides the right framework within which God's people can enjoy this good gift of love and sexual intimacy. God's people honor him and commend him to the world when we walk in the bounds that God has created for us. When we demonstrate with our lives obedience and the fact that obedience to God matters. And it brings genuine satisfaction and delight in a very broken, fallen world. I don't believe there is a such thing as a perfect marriage, as a perfect couple. We're all flawed. And I heard one preacher describe it as instead of being one sinner, 
we enter into a relationship with another sinner, and now in this house there's two sinners that are trying to live together, and all sorts of crazy things happen. And all the husbands and wives say, Amen. Marriage is not easy, but it's a glorious, amazing gift from God. And it begins with the proper boundaries that God puts on this love, emotional love, physical love that we have for one another. Marriage is a gift of God. And marriage is to be founded on commitment, loyalty, dedication, and faithfulness. Nothing can destroy the lives of children, adults, communities, like a husband or a wife breaking this commitment that they made to God, to the community, and to one another. We're on holy ground this morning when we talk about marriage. The next thing I want you to notice as a key theme in this book is that we are emotional beings. I know there are a lot of us, and, and we all have different personalities looking around the room. Some of you I know really well, some of you I don't know very well. But we all have different personalities, but every single one of us are emotional beings. We cannot hide our emotions. We try to. We can't run from our emotions. We try to. We try to deny our emotions, but we just hurt ourselves when we block off this area of our lives and we say, I've been hurt and I'm just going to put people on the outside because I'm not going to experience hurt in that way again. When we do that, we allow people who have hurt and betrayed us to determine our future. We're called to open ourselves in wisdom, in the proper context, in the community of faith, to open ourselves to people, even though we know it's risky. We can get hurt deeply. How many of us have been hurt in a relationship? How many of us have been hurt deeply in a church, in some other institution, in a job, in a school? Anytime we love, we open ourselves up to deep wounds and deep hurt. But God is reminding us in this book this morning that this is his plan we have emotions, we need emotions, and we should express our emotions in the right way. Now, I'm not saying that everybody should write poetry. I think precious few people on this planet are really good at that. And if you're good at it, do it. Praise God, honor Him with it. It's a glorious thing. Everybody's not good at it. But hey, maybe there's one person out there that will think you're good at it if you write a poem about them. I don't know. Sometimes it's just between certain people. But that doesn't mean God necessarily wants us all to write songs or poems, but he wants us to be authentic and real. He created us in his image and our emotions reflect our creator. God expresses emotions in scripture. Now it's different than us. We express them many times in a very sinful way, but God's emotions are pure and perfect and they're never arbitrary. God is 100% in control of himself. The next thing we see is that the husband and wife should aim for this type of relationship. God has put his stamp of approval. This is holy scripture. And we should aim for this. We're broken. We're falling, fallen. None of us measure up perfectly to this. 
But we're called to honor God with our marriages. The next theme that we see in this book is that sex, in the proper context, is not dirty, but it's a beautiful gift of God. I don't know if anybody else was raised in a religious or church context where it was almost like sex was made to look dirty. And it was, it was hidden. It was almost just given over to the world. And the church didn't really talk a lot about it. But it's not a dirty thing in the proper context. It honors God. It glorifies God. It's a beautiful gift from God. Now, I went to a youth conference as a kid. I was maybe... 11, 12 years old. And if you've ever been to a youth conference, one of the main topics they talk about is sexual purity. And they were just driving this home. I mean, driving it home, almost going too far. We, sh we should be sexually pure. We need to honor God with our bodies. The Bible tells us that. But they almost made sex sound like a bad thing. Not a good thing that is within the proper boundaries that God has given us that we're supposed to wait for. It was just almost like making it sound like an evil thing. And that is not how the Bible presents it. As parents, we, we need to really honor God with how we, at the right time and in the right way, explain these things to our children. But at this youth, youth conference, while they're just preaching this almost uh, unrealistic uh, view of love and sex looking back as an adult it's interesting that we sang this song at the very beginning called his banner over me is love how many of you've heard that song or you maybe sang that song okay anybody who went through youth conferences you you remember that song it actually comes from the song of solomon solomon uh song of solomon 2 4 says he brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. They even taught us motions to the song. Some of you probably remember those motions. But can you imagine my surprise and my amusement when as an adult I discovered what that song means? This is a song that a husband and a wife are singing to one another about entering into the marriage commitment. And into the bedroom the first night of their marriage. This song is actually about enjoying the gift of sex from God. And as a young boy, I was singing the song, had zero idea what this song meant, what the context was for this song. But looking back on it, I can't help but chuckle to myself thinking that an entire room of kids were singing about sex and even doing the motions, and I won't get into details. But it's just a little bit humorous. And sometimes we try to twist something beautiful into something that's off limits or dangerous when God gave it to us as a good gift. And there are many things in life that we do. Many times the church decides to make rules that are nowhere found in Scripture. I mean, growing up, this is just one example. Growing up, I was told you should not touch a girl, you should not hold hands, you must not ever, 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 ever kiss a girl before you're married. Now, now that might be a real good guideline for your life. It'll protect you. It's a guardrail. It'll protect you from 
going over into falling off of the cliff of sexual immorality. But does the Bible teach that? Remember I told you this song starts out about the man and the woman before they get married. And in the Song of Solomon, I challenge you to read the first few chapters before they consummate their marriage. They're kissing one another. There's a lot of kissing going on. A lot of things that don't line up with the rules and the guidelines that I was taught. Now, we do need boundaries. We need to be careful. And you can, you can believe with all your heart that I'm teaching my daughters they don't need a man. They definitely don't need to be kissing a man. They don't need all those rules. That's, those are good rules. I like those rules. But when we try to put the guardrails way over here, what does that say about God's boundaries and God's guardrails? We need to trust what God's word says. So sex in the proper context is not dirty. It's a beautiful gift of God. But also we see that sex outside the proper context is an attack against God's created order. Church, it starts here. We've got to understand we live in a culture that is so jacked up, so messed up when it comes to love and sexuality and intimacy between a man and a woman that we've got to understand what God says, what thus saith the Lord. And it starts with understanding that in the pro proper context is beautiful, but when it's outside of that context, it's an attack against God's created order. Fornication. The Greek word pornea is a general term for sexual immorality. It includes adultery, homosexuality, pornography. And any time we step outside of these boundaries that God has given us for love and sex, these good boundaries that God has given us, these boundaries that protect us from ourselves and from the schemes of the enemy that he's using to destroy marriages and children and families and our world. When we step outside of those boundaries, it is an attack against God's created order and we need to repent of our sins as children of God, as a church, because we live in a culture that it's literally at our fingertips. It's in our pockets. It's on our desktop. It's hanging on our wall. We have access to anything and everything. And that's just images. We also have access to communication, social media, apps, all these different things that can be used to glorify God, but the majority of the time they're used to dishonor God and as, attack, as an attack against God's created order. Adultery is forbidden and judged in Scripture, judged very harshly. Homosexuality is clearly defined and forbidden in Scripture. The Bible says in Hebrews 13, 4, Let the marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Just getting back to raising children. There's an important verse in Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 7, that gives us a warning. And it says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does in the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love 
until it pleases or before the proper time. God has given us this gift, but it has a context and we need to be wise with how we raise our children, with how we model purity for our children. The next thing I see as a major theme in this book is that communication is an essential reality in a healthy marriage. Communication is an essential reality in a healthy marriage. And this might be the thing that I am the worst at in marriage. Anybody else in here? Can you understand where I'm coming from? Guys, a lot of times we just hide it on the inside. And sometimes women are this way. We just hide it on the inside. We hold it in. We expect people to read our minds. We are seeing an example of a healthy, thriving love relationship between a man and a woman. It's a beautiful thing. And what are they doing? They're talking back and forth, singing back and forth, communicating to one another. And we're called to have God-honoring, healthy relationships in our lives. And the primary relationship after our relationship with God is our relationship with our spouse. So communication is essential in a healthy relationship. Also see, moving outside of the, the thought of, of sexual intimacy... Pleasure in and of itself is a gift from God. Again, growing up, it's almost like any sort of pleasure, any sort of joy, you should feel guilty about it because we're called to be holy, but we're not called to be happy. You're not going to find that anywhere in Scripture. I think the happiest people on this planet are holy people who live by God's rules, obey God's commandments for His glory and for, for our own pleasure. Pleasure is a gift of God. In this book alone, they talk about sex as pleasure, drinking wine as pleasure, singing, laughter, celebration, parties. We're not called to live a life devoid of pleasure. God has given us these gifts. Now, they're not to become idols in our lives. If pleasure is what you're seeking after and everything else is secondary, you're never going to find true pleasure. Solomon found that out. But pleasure is a good gift from God. We're not called to live as some sort of monk hiding away in a cage, only eating dirt and drinking a small amount of water. That's, that's not the life God called us to live. A lot of people have tried that and they think it makes them more holy. But I honestly think, along with Solomon, that people who live lives of joy and pleasure for the glory of God and the benefit of others experience more joy and holiness in life than someone who's trying to totally reject any pleasure. God created joy and pleasure. He is joyful and He takes pleasure in His creation. This is important. We've got to understand this. We've got to understand that we glorify God when we live our lives before Him and before others in a way that reflect His created order. And in this context of this book, when we marry, when we faithfully love our spouse, when we have children, when we bring them up to love God 
and to love others. The two greatest commandments. And here's a very sobering fact about this book. The man who wrote this book ultimately failed at honoring God in this. Solomon, we've just studied his life. He ultimately failed at marriage. I don't know if there is another single human being that made a mockery of marriage any more than Solomon did. He disobeyed God's boundaries for marriage. He married multiple women. He married women that were idol worshipers. Both of those things were forbidden by God. And yet we see him writing and honoring in the beginning, starting well. We begin well, a lot of us in our lives, but then he drifts and ends up dishonoring God with his marriage. His children were a mess. Same as David, Solomon's father. The children were not honoring God, didn't follow in the footsteps of their parents completely in honoring God, loving God. And we see all sorts of horrible things coming from the children of David and Solomon. And Solomon ultimately went away and started worshiping idols to the point that God cursed his children and divided the kingdom. It started this downward spiral of Israel where ultimately it was taken away into captivity before God restored them. So, amazing book, amazing themes, but it's not enough to know this. How many of us as Christians, we know how we're supposed to live. We know what the Bible says. We could stand up and teach what the Bible says, and some of us do, but we stop short and don't live it out in our daily lives. That's where we're dropping the ball. That's where we're missing it. That's where Solomon missed it. We're called to do, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Jesus said that we should build our lives upon the rock. And the people who are building their lives on the rock are the ones that do the things that he's teaching. Not just the ones that say, yes, he's my guy. I'm a Jesus guy. I'm a Christian and then we walk away and live lives as if there were no God. And that's just a brief sampling. I could go into a whole lot more about the themes in this book, but I think that drives the point home. The next thing I want you to see is the Christ connection in this book. And this is where we are headed every time we start out a sermon doing an overview of the Bible because every single book in the Bible points to Jesus it's all about Jesus. The entire Old Testament is telling us that we're in trouble. There's a problem. We're fallen. This world is cursed. But someone's coming to set it right. The Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the deliverer, he's coming. That's what the whole Old Testament's about. The New Testament says he's here. His name is Jesus. And this is what he did to set things right in the world. He died on the cross, rose from the dead, lived a perfect sinless life. Died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended into glory, rules and reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords, commissioned his church to make disciples, teaching them all the things that he commanded us. And he gave us his Holy Spirit. So the New Testament tells us he's here, the Christ arrived. And then it tells us how to live as his people, the church. In the apostles' writings. And it tells us that one day he's coming back. 
Just as he came the first time, just as he fulfilled that promise, he will return for his people. So the Christ connection in this book is that the church is the bride of Christ. It's not an accident that that's the imagery that God chooses to use. We are the bride of Christ. The church as a whole, every soul that's been born again, redeemed, washed by the blood of Christ. He purchased us with his blood. We belong to him. He belongs to us. We are in Christ. We love him because he first loved us. Jesus laid his life down for his bride. He's faithful to us. And we're called to walk in faithfulness to our Lord and Savior. Just like the book of the Song of Solomon, Jesus is the king. He is the one who's ruling and reigning and offering everything to his bride, to his people. We are unworthy of this love. We never could have dreamed that we could have the love of God after we had betrayed and disobeyed him and rebelled against the ruler of this universe Yet God in his love chose to offer us his love through Jesus Christ. He sought us out. He loved us when we were unlovely. He rescued us, did everything that needed to be done so that we could be a part of his family. He gave us his name. He calls us his own. And one day we will be with him and see him face to face. Marriage provides a distant glimpse of the joy and the beauty and the pleasure that we will experience for all of eternity as the bride of Christ. The Christ connection cannot be missed in this book. I believe that this book is primarily about a love relationship between a man or a woman. If you try to twist everything in this book to be between Jesus and his church, it just doesn't work. A lot of people try to do that. Yes, marriage is a reflection of our relationship with Jesus. But that's not primarily what this book is about. But it does remind us that that's how God chooses to define his relationship with us. It's a distant glimpse of what we will experience one day. And then finally, I want you to see the gospel in this book. This book is all about relationships. We were created for relationships. Church, if you have an understanding of the gospel, it has to, to be connected with relationships. God created us for four primary relationships. The first relationship God created us for is our relationship with Him. In the Garden of Eden, God created man and woman as his image bears, and he walked with us, and he talked with us, and there was this mutual love, and everything was as it should be. There was peace, there was joy, there was pleasure. God was glorified, and man and woman experienced the joy that God created them for. The second relationship God created us for was the relationship within ourselves. I've said already, we are emotional beings. We have emotions. We have thoughts. We have minds. We have souls. And we primarily exist within ourselves. If something's broken in here or in here, it affects everything else. 
in life. Mental health is a real issue. It's an effect of the fall. And I'm not saying everybody who experiences mental health struggles is sinning and that's why they're, they're experiencing these things. I am not saying that. What I'm saying is we live in a broken, fallen, sin-cursed world that affects our physical bodies, our emotions, our minds. Every aspect of us has been affected by the fall. So within ourselves, the turmoil, the anxiety, the lack of peace, the lack of satisfaction, the lack of joy, that happened after the fall. Originally, when God created us in his image, we were perfectly at peace within ourselves. The third relationship is with others. And it's real hard to have a good relationship with someone else when you're at war within yourselves. Amen? When, when you're at war with yourself, it doesn't matter who you meet. If it's the nicest person on the planet, the most agreeable person on the planet, we'll find a way to challenge them. We'll find a way to not get along with them. So this relationship within our, with God, with ourselves, and then this relationship with others, they were all created. And in the garden, we see this perfect harmony that's existing between man and woman and and they're just in love. They're singing songs to each other. And there's just this beautiful creation. They have a job to do. Work existed before the fall. We just talked about that recently. It glorifies God. They had, they had a job and a, a God-given role as, ruling, as rulers over their creation. Over the creation that God had made. And that is the fourth relationship. We were created to have a relationship with the world around us, with creation, to rule and to reign and to steward God's relationship. But sin marred every one of these relationships. Sin separated us from God, from others. It affected our relationship within ourselves, our mental health, and ultimately we've neglected the world around us and the creation that God gave us to steward. We use it for our own benefit in a way that does not honor God. And we don't fulfill the roles that God has given us. He's created us all with different gifts, different abilities. And many times those things are turned back within ourselves as a way to worship ourselves rather than to serve others and serve God by doing something in this creation that he's given us. And many times people either dishonor God's creation by how we treat this planet that he's given us, or we worship this planet that he's given us as God itself. And those are the two extremes that we see people in our communities, and even probably in this building, we fall into those two extremes where we're like, ah, it just doesn't matter. Mow down all the trees, let's burn all the fires, let's just, who cares? Jesus is going to come back and burn it down one day, so just whatever, who cares? No, the Bible tells us we're called to steward his creation. The things he's given us are precious, the resources. And we should, as Christians, lead the way in how we do this. But we don't ever want to cross over into worshiping those things. And, and exalting the creation over the creator. Romans 1 talks about that. And we worship these things and we get them out of the proper context that God created it to be. So sin mars all four of these relationships. 
But Jesus came to restore, first of all, the primary relationship, the relationship between God and man. And there's just no point in trying to restore these other three relationships unless your relationship with God has been restored. There's a word in the Bible that talks about this restoration. It's reconciliation. We have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This reconciliation came through the cross, through the blood that was shed on the cross. And the gospel tells us that we can be reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's the only hope for the world. There is no other plan of salvation. He died on the cross as a sacrifice for my sin, for your sin. He was our substitute. And he rose from the dead, proclaiming victory over death, hell, the grave, and the enemy. And he offers us into this new relationship with God where we're loved, where we're accepted, not based on our works, but based on grace through faith. Through simple faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross and his resurrection, we can be born again. We can be saved. We can be reconciled to God. That's the whole point of salvation is to have that primary relationship that sin destroyed. The separation that happened has been mended. Jesus took God's hand and he took our hand and he joined us together. Once that relationship is restored, then we learn how to live at peace within ourselves, accepting that we're broken, that we're fallen, that we're not perfect, but that we have a Savior who loves us and the Holy Spirit comes inside of our minds and our bodies and fills us and teaches us how to live at peace within ourselves, how to understand the image of God, who we are, our identity in Christ. And when we understand that, we begin to heal and then we can start living in harmony with other people and start loving one another. Is it any accident that the defining mark of the church is our love for one another? Because the world that hasn't had the relationship restored between God and man, they don't know how to live at peace with themselves or with one another. No matter how much it seems like everything's just going on, everything's right. David said, why did the wicked prosper? Why does it seem like everything's perfect in their life? And here I am trying to serve God and everything's broken in my life. In the end, the story will be told. The only true peace and harmony and unity that exists in this world is in the house of God. And the defining mark of Christians is our love for one another. That only happens after we've been reconciled to God. After God begins to heal us on the inside, we begin to love one another. And then we begin to fulfill our role in creation. Our marriages glorify God. Our jobs can glorify God through this reconciliation. And Solomon deals with this beautiful gift of marriage and love. And shows us what it's supposed to look like for the people of God. For people who are living in covenant with God. And we have that hope only because Jesus came and he purchased a bride with the cost of his own blood. We need Jesus this morning. He is the lover of our souls. And whatever stage of life we find ourselves in, 
I, I know we have people that have been married for years in this room. People that have lost their spouses. People that are new, newly married. People that are hoping to be married. People that have been married just for a, a little while. I, I kind of find, I think I've been married a long time until I compare myself with, with Pastor Earl and Miss Pat. How many years have you been married? 61 years. I've, I'm coming up on 28 years, and I think that's a really long time. And I'm just amazed that my wife is an angel and she's put up with me for all these years. 61 years. And I was talking to Pastor Earl this morning. And God has used Earl, as a lot of us can testify in this room, to show us what true love looks like. Love's not always easy, is it, Earl? Love's not always easy. We go through different stages in life and we go through different, different seasons God's good. And God gives us good gifts. And it's a reminder, marriage is a reminder that we all need Jesus. It all starts with him. It all comes from him. And he is the ultimate lover of our soul. And if you find yourself this morning, which I think every one of us do, needing love, needing healing, needing peace, needing comfort through trials and difficult seasons of life. Jesus is all we need. Everything we need is found in him. He's the hope for our future. He's healing through our, for our hurts. And he's ultimately the one that will one day, when we breathe our last breath, we'll see him face to face. And for all of eternity, no more tears, no more sorrow, praise God. No more death, no more suffering, no more separation forever and ever. We will live with Him in perfect, perfect harmony with the creation around us, with, with God, with ourselves, with other humans. And I can't wait for that day to come. When I was a kid, I used to sing this song all the time. Heaven sounding sweeter all the time. As a kid, I didn't know what that meant. The older I get, and the more I experience heartaches, difficulties, and pain in this life, the more it makes a whole lot of sense to me that heaven is sounding sweeter all the time. This isn't how it was created to be. Yes, we get joy. We get glimpses of beauty and love in this life. But ultimately, this life was created to lead us to the perfect life that God has in store for us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word this morning. Lord, I pray that you would allow these truths that are in your holy inspired word to sink deep in our hearts. God, may we look at ourselves and see where we're at, what we're doing, how we're living our lives, because it reflects on you and it reflects on those around us. God, may our lives bring joy and beauty to the people that we meet. May our lives bring honor and glory and joy to your heart. May you take pleasure in how we live as your children. God, I just ask you that you would speak to us through the words of this book. That you're calling us into something more than just mental affirmation. You're calling us into a lifestyle of obedience and love for you and for other people. And God, we just ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit because that's the only hope that any of us have of living this kind of life and experiencing 
this kind of joy. And Lord, we do ask that you would come quickly. Lord, all of our hope is in you. And we just ask that you would comfort us and be with us as we're walking this road through our struggles, through our joys, through our pleasures, through our trials. God, would you walk with us, fill us with your spirit, and ultimately, God, may our eyes be focused on the day when we see you face to face. Thank you for loving us when we didn't deserve it. Thank you for shedding the most precious, precious commodity this universe has ever seen, your life's blood that was shed to forgive us. God, please use us to spread this good news to everybody who needs this week.